0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible study teaching podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc online.org. Now, here's Pastor Sean. All right, so Judges chapters, we're going to do both chapters one and two tonight, but I want to just kind of give you some background. About the book of Judges before we even start. And first of all, the book of Judges covers a pretty long period of time. Um, it covers the period from when Joshua dies all the way up to about the time that King Saul becomes king of Israel. One thing we also need to understand is that the author of the book of Judges is unknown. There's an anonymous author. We don't know exactly who wrote it. The Book of Judges is highly connected to the Book of Joshua. And so, to understand how Judges begins, you have to almost understand how the Book of Joshua ends. So let's go back in Israelite history. What did God command Israel to do under Joshua when they crossed the Jordan River? They were to go in, and what were they to do with the land? They were to occupy the promised land. And we're going to talk a little bit about what occupy means. Um, I'm not going to bring that up now, but it's a very difficult issue in the book of Joshua and Judges. Um, But let's just dive in to um, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, because this gives us basically the introduction to the book. And then we're going to jump back into Deuteronomy and Joshua to kind of get get our bearings straight because we're jumping into a brand new book. Sometimes we need to get the historical landscape of of where we're at. So um, Judges chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is how it begins. After the death of Joshua, so it links back to the book right before it, Joshua. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first? For us against the Canaanites to fight against them. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Okay. Joshua's dead. Now the question is, who's going to be the leader? Now here's the big problem with the book of Judges. And it goes back to Joshua. In the book of Deuteronomy, going all over the place. Moses made provisions for a succession, okay? So let's turn to Deuteronomy for a moment. Keep your finger in Judges. Turn back to Deuteronomy because Moses sets up a leadership structure when he's dead, when he's gone, which is very, very important. One of the key issues in Judges we're going to see over and over again is failure of spiritual leadership, a lack of spiritual leadership in the religious leaders and in the, especially, fathers, parents, okay? So, Deuteronomy chapter 31, let's read verses 1 through 8. Deuteronomy 31, 1 through 8. So, Moses continued to speak. These words to all Israel and he said to them, I'm a 21, 121 year old years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord, your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy those nations before you so that you shall dispose them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who, gives, who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him, "'In sight of all Israel!' Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So what does Moses do? Moses gets Joshua in front of the entire nation and says, I am transferring leadership over to Joshua. I'm old. I'm not going into the promised land. I'm setting up Joshua as the spiritual leader of the nation. Now think about Moses for a moment. How long had Moses been with these people? This generation, 40 years. And 40 years before that. So they had the same guy for 80 years leading them. So Moses had, Moses' shoes were big to fill. The big question Israel would be faced with is, okay, what are we going to do now that Moses is gone? Moses was smart, said, I'm going to set up a spiritual leader in front of all of Israel. Joshua is going to be that spiritual leader. He's going to go in and take the land. Joshua, don't fear. Don't be be courageous. The Lord's with you. Okay, go to chapter 34 of Deuteronomy. Chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, verses 9 through 12. This is how Deuteronomy ends. And how before Joshua, so Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, they're all right there together, not only canonically in order in the Bible, but also chronologically in order. So Deuteronomy 34, 9 through 12. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants, to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds, the terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So what does Moses do? How does does Deuteronomy end? Moses had laid his hands on Joshua in front of all the people saying, He the man. Joshua is the man. He's the one that's going to go in to occupy the land. Here's a problem at the end of Joshua. How does Deuteronomy end? Moses to Joshua. How does Joshua end? At the end of the book of Joshua, you see no secession plan or a commissioning of spiritual leadership. Joshua does not set up a leader, Joshua does not empower a leader. There is no Moses. There is no Joshua. You'd expect there to be another guy, right? Okay, You have Moses. You got Joshua. Now, who's going to be the next big man that's going to lead them? There is none. So the book of Judges begins with no clear leader in Israel. And because there's no clear, identifiable leader, it's going to cause major problems. Now, how does it start? Go back to Joshua. I mean, go back to Judges. Verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people prayed and said, Lord, what do we do now? Okay? So, they need leadership. They need to know what's going on. Their leader's dead. So, Joshua, their esteemed leader's dead. But here's the grace in the book of Judges. God still works through Israel. God gives directions to Judah. Now, Judah is the primary tribe to conquer the land. Now, what birth order was Judah? Do you guys remember? Was he the firstborn? No, he was the the fourthborn. But Judah is the tribe from which David's going to come. It's the tribe from which Jesus comes. Judah is the primary tribe in Israel. And so look at verse 2. Their question is, well, in verse 1, okay, our leader's dead. We still haven't occupied the land. We've got to fight these Canaanites. What are we supposed to do, Lord? And how does God answer them in verse 2? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. What's the first thing the Israelites do in the book of Judges? Anytime you see in your Bible, the people are so-and-so inquired of the Lord. What does that mean? they prayed okay they're in their desperation the first thing they do is pray now the text doesn't tell us this we don't know if they had a meeting we don't know if they had committees coming together we don't know if they strategized but the first thing we see is them praying because they're desperate our leader's dead We're in the land. We're supposed to be occupying the land. There's still enemies. There's still Canaanites. There's still pagans all around us. What are we supposed to do? They knew they were powerless without a leader. So the first thing they do is pray. So here's a question for us tonight. A little bit of audience participation. Why are we so tempted to charge out and fix things in our own power when crisis hits instead of praying and asking for guidance from the Lord? This is addressed mainly to us as men, but I'll let the women answer this question as well too. Why do we want to just fix things when we're in crisis mode, as opposed to praying? Because we're impatient. Okay, we're impatient. Pride. Pride. What do we often think? We want to make sure people know we can do things. Okay, pride. We want to be self-sufficient. We don't want to admit we have weaknesses. We don't want to admit that we're in trouble. Okay? So the first thing they do is pray. Now, question. When you pray, are you, in a sense, getting God to, quote, unquote, do something because He was powerless to do it in the first place and He's relying upon your prayers to get things done? Is, is that what's happening when we pray? Okay, so, so the question is, when we, I'm linking prayer with God's sovereignty here. Why are, um, The question is, is God absolutely sovereign? Is there a maverick molecule in the universe that's roaming free outside of God's control? And the answer is no. So the question is, okay, why pray if God's got it all figured out? Why pray if God's going to get it done? Why pray if God is sovereign? We shouldn't need to pray, shouldn't we? If God's just going to do it, why pray? Okay, we need to see His hand in action, Jenny? We have to make our let Him know that we know that we can. Okay, so we're admitting our weaknesses to Him. Okay, Mm -hmm. well, let's look at some verses that teach that God's absolutely in control. So it's not like when we pray, we're giving God information that He doesn't already know. Uh, Psalm 33, 8 through 11. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Um, Isaiah fourteen, twenty-seven: For the Lord of hosts is purposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? Rhetorical question, nobody, if God's in control. Uh, Isaiah 46, 9-10, through 10, remember the former things of old, for I am God, there's no other, I'm God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And then Daniel four thirty five. all the inhabitants of the earth are recounted as nothing, he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what? Have you done? So these are scriptures that teach... um, There's Job 42.2. I know that you can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Since these scriptures teach the absolute sovereignty of God, why pray if He's got it all figured out? And here's the answer, the short answer. Don't want to spend a lot of time on this tonight. We don't pray to change God's mind or to somehow manipulate Him or control Him. Instead, we pray to seek His face in intimacy and fellowship and to show our utter dependence upon Him. So we're praying to a sovereign God that knows everything we need before we pray, so we're not giving Him information that He didn't know. Prayer is for us to grow closer in intimacy with God and to grow closer to Him. And so one of the things that we need to understand about prayer is that we don't somehow manipulate God in our praying. Prayer is the means for us to grow closer to God in intimacy with God and fellowship with God. But here's another question. Okay. Why is prayer such hard work I guarantee you if I were to advertise next week we're going to have a prophecy conference where I'm going to talk about the end times we'd have tons of people show up okay next week we're going to have a Christian concert tons of people show up next week we're going to bring in a great great, great public a great preacher to, to preach a lot of people show up Next week we're going to have a twenty-four hour prayer vigil where we're going to come and just pray at the church. <laughs> 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 It'll be crickets, okay? The faithful few are going to show up, and the reason why is because prayer is somewhat hard to do. It, it involves, you know, your whole faculties. Uh, Martin Luther said this: "Prayer is the hardest work of all, a labor above all labor, since he who prays must wage a mighty warfare." against the doubt and the murmuring excited by the faint-heartedness and unworthiness we feel within us. There's no greater work than praying. That's a pretty strong statement by Martin Luther. There's no greater work than praying. Jesus in the garden, when He's praying, comes back in Mark 14, 37-38, He came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter, couldn't you just pray for an hour? You're, you're falling asleep. Luke eleven one. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, "Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples." It's interesting. That's Jesus. Jesus's disciples. I don't think you may have to correct me on this. I don't think they ever came to him and said, "Jesus, teach us how to do miracles." Jesus teach us how to preach. Jesus teach us how to cast out demons. Now they may have done that, but what are they asking here? Jesus teach us how to pray. Okay? They saw something in Jesus about his prayer life that they felt like they needed to be taught in that because prayer is hard work. And Colossians 4 2 tells us continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving so the first thing we see in the book of judges is their leaders dead they are desperate they don't know what they're supposed to do and they in their powerlessness and their weakness pray which is what they should be doing and here's the beautiful thing what does the lord do does the lord answer their prayer yeah verse two the lord answers their prayer i'm gonna send judah out first and i will be with judah i've given this into his hand So the Lord gives them a promise. They pray. What are we supposed to do, God? God says, Judah, you're going to go first. You're going to lead the pack. I'm with you, okay? So that's how Judges starts. Now let's move into the second part of chapter one, successes and failures of the tribe of Judah. So let's read verses three through 20, and there's a lot of funny names here. I'll try to do the best I can to get through all these, okay? So... And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Oh, by the way, let me just stop right there. I need to give you a surgeon's general warning, especially in the weeks to come. Judges is the most R-rated book in the Bible, okay? So when we get to some of these R-rated parts, just be adults and deal with them, okay? So there's nothing held back in this book, okay? So they cut off his thumbs and his big toes, Verse 7, And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me." And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Seshai and Ahimon and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Eksah, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksaw his daughter for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephoth and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. Okay. Starts with a lot of promise here, right? What is this opening scene? Judah and Simeon. The two tribes are working together in harmony and are things going well for them? I mean, it's like success after success. The Lord gave them the land. Judah's conquering these people. Things are going really, really good. It starts out very optimistically. The tribes are unified. Judah's leading. They're praying. The Lord's giving them success. Everybody's working together. But as we'll see, that quickly deteriorates. But before we get to that, a looming question you've got to ask and wrestle with in the book of Judges is, why would God command genocide? If you read the Old Testament, you've got to struggle with that question. When they're to go occupy the land, what does that mean? Kill everybody in the towns. Not just leave a few people there, not just enslave them, but wipe them out. (coughs) And we, with our 21st century sensibilities, look at that and think, that does not compute. That does not sound right. Why would God command them to go totally wipe out people? I don't have a good answer for that, but let (coughs) me attempt to um, at least address it were the canaanites innocent god's sovereign plan was for them to be punished for their sin and israel was to carry out their justice it's not like we're dealing with a bunch of innocent bystanders who had not done anything wrong we're dealing with pagan nations that had time and time again come against israel and God is using Israel to punish them. Now, there's a reason why they need to be driven out. And God tells them back that back in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 9, 4-6, through, through Moses, God tells the people what they need to do when they go into the land. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Why is God driving them out? Because of their wickedness. Not because of your righteousness, Israel, or the uprightness of your heart, Israel, are you going in to possess the land. Okay, so Israel, you're not going in there because you're this stellar people as well. It's not because you're any more righteous. The reason I'm doing this is because these are a wicked people. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you and that, the, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness for you are a stubborn people. So what does God say to Israel? You're almost just as bad as this nation that you're going in to take over. So there's no merit. There's no earning. You're not getting the land because you deserve it, Israel, because you're so stellar. I'm giving this to you as an act of grace. Now, I'm going to wipe out the pagan Canaanites because of their wickedness, but I could just as easily wipe you out, Israel, but I'm choosing not to. So in a degree of wickedness, Israel's wicked. The pagan nations are more wicked God is showing grace to Israel by saying, I'm going to have you go in and wipe out these pagan, wicked nations, but it's not because somehow you're better than them. As a matter of fact, you're, you're stubborn as well. I'm doing this because I'm your covenant God. Now, Del, Rife, Del Ralph Davis, who's written a really good book on judges, he says this. I like the way he puts things. The Bible does not claim the conquest will be palatable, but it does insist it was just. Anyway, contemporary Western church members who vicariously and avidly gorge themselves on violence via television and cinema have forfeited any right to throw the first stone at the biblical conquest. <laughs> What's he saying there? If it bothers you so much that God commanded genocide, but yet you're going to go watch a, a violent movie or play a violent video game and get all mad about violence. He says you really have no right to, to get mad at it if you're, if you're going to get involved in, in violence. So we really can't... It's, it's a hard pill to swallow why God would do that, but we have to trust that He's God. He's doing it for a purpose. It's in the Bible. It's true, and that this is what God's plan was. Now, look at verse 20 for a moment. Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. Caleb. Do you guys remember Caleb? Caleb. Joshua and Caleb. Okay, Caleb was from the tribe of Judah. He was one of the 12 spies sent in to spy out the promised land. And only he and Joshua gave a good report. Remember they came back? In Numbers chapter 14, 6 through 9, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. What happened? What did the people say? The people came back and said, we're, we look like grasshoppers. Or we're, I mean, this, they're giants in the land. We can't do this. And Joshua and Caleb are the only two that stood up and said, we can do this. And everybody wanted actually, everybody wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb and stone Moses. And they're tearing their clothes saying, don't do this. Caleb remained faithful to the very end. And God, and God made a promise to him through Moses. Moses promised that Caleb, when they inherited the land, would get Hebron. In Numbers 14.24, But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land in which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Caleb was faithful. It said Caleb had a different spirit. He wasn't rebellious. He wasn't going against Moses' leadership. He was obedient to the Lord. Deuteronomy. 136 except Caleb the son of Jephthah he shall see it and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden because he is holy he is holy followed the lord okay let's talk about Caleb for a moment because in the opening passages here of judges Caleb gets his land and God rewards him with the land but you have to go back to Joshua to kind of see the full story here so go back to Joshua chapter 14 and I love, for those of you that are old, der, than me, I should just stop and say, that's a, oh man, I almost got myself in trouble. For those of you that are seasoned citizens, <laughs> a little bit more gray hair than us middle-aged citizens, um, this is an encouraging passage of scripture about Caleb. So go to Joshua 14, 6 through 15. This is a great story. This is is the story of how Caleb gets his land. So Deuteronomy, Moses promises it to him. Joshua, we're going to see it right here. And then in Judges. So in three books, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges, Caleb is rewarded with the land because of his faithfulness. Hebron. So let's pick up in verse 6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again, again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day saying surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. <laughs> and now behold the Lord has kept me alive just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while I was while I while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and for coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Don't you love caleb i was 40 years old when i went and spied out the land and i came back and i wholly follow the lord i follow the lord and moses said you're gonna get hebron and here i am i'm 85 years old and i follow the lord into my senior citizen age and i've got just as much strength as i had back then so as an 85 year old man give me this mountain i'm gonna climb up that mountain i'm gonna take it because i have followed the lord till my dying day would that we'd all be like caleb that's an awesome testimony about a man who wholly... I don't know what your translation says. Mine says, holy. followed the Lord. Who wholly followed the Lord all the days of his life. He never wavered, and God rewarded him with that Hebron. He claimed his mountain, even as 85. Now, think about, it. sometimes as you get older, doesn't it become a little bit easier to coast... You can maybe have the attitude, you know what? I did all that spiritual zeal stuff in my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, my 50s. Now I'm getting into my 80s. I can just kind of coast with the Lord. You know, I, I had some good years early, but now, you know, I'm just going to kind of waste away my last years. If that wasn't Caleb. Caleb's was like, listen, I, I have followed the Lord to my dying day, and he rewarded him with Hebron. So a, I think it's a good testimony of growing old in the Lord, being passionate to follow the Lord, even into your seasoned citizen, if you live to be 85 years old, you want to say like Caleb, give me my mountain. I want to go conquer my mountain. Okay? So, back to Judges. The tribes, especially the leading tribes, Judah and Simeon, are working in unison. They're fulfilling a mission ordained by God. We can learn a great deal about how we function as a church through this. What's the lesson for us? We as believers need each to work in unity to do God's will as well. Are we to be unified as a church in fulfilling God's mission for us? The answer is, no, we want to be disunified, right? No, we want to be unified. What does Paul tell us in Ephesians? about unity, about working together, about a common purpose, about doing God's will, about working for God's kingdom. Um, Ephesians four thirteen through 16, "...until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children." tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who's the head. That is Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, this is a rhetorical question. I don't know if we can answer it tonight, but just a question to think about. How can we work together in unity to accomplish God's will? As we think about the beginning of 2018, um, as a church, as a family, as an individual, um, God may be calling us or calling you to do something for Him that requires faith, that requires risks, that requires um, bravery, that requires passion, and you can't do it alone. We see these tribes working together. They're unified. God is with them. They're praying. I mean, everything starts out great here in Judges. Doesn't it start out great? They're praying. They're seeking the Lord. Lord's given them victory. Lord's given victory. They're unified. They're working together. Everything is working great until you get to verse 21. Okay? So here's part three. The failure of the remaining tribes. So two tribes are walking with the Lord, two tribes are praying, two tribes are unified. Judah and Simeon are doing what God has called them to do. But there's a problem child out there, and his name's Benjamin, okay? So let's let's look up verses 21 through 36. Let's look to the end of the chapter, because what started out good will end in failure, just like that. In chapter 1, okay? So, verse 21. But, (laughs) don't you like when it starts with but? (laughs) But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So, the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now, just chronologically, guys, Jerusalem is not the Jerusalem as we know it yet. It has not been captured by King David. So it's not the capital. It's, it's a, actually a Jebusite city. It's a pagan city at this point. It's not been captured. Okay, so it's not Jerusalem the way we understand it. When David comes and brings the ark in and sets up the capital, that's not, that hasn't happened yet chronologically. The Jebusites are still there. Verse 22, the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel, and the name of the city was formerly Luz, and the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That's his name to this day. So the the, the, tribes of jo- the house of Joseph had success as well. Okay? Benjamin, not so much. Now The rest of the tribes, remember the 12 tribes? Here, here we go. Verse 27, Manasseh, which is a tribe, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethsheon and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Ibleam and its villages, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling on that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Alhab or Azkib or Helbah, or of Aphek or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for, the city did not, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth-Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth-Shemesh and of Beth-Anath became subjects to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heras, in Ajalon, and in Shablim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akbarim, from Selah and upward. Okay, bunch of names, bunch of stuff. What's the bottom line? The tone shifts. How does judges start? They're praying. They're working together. God's given them success after success after success. How does chapter 1 end? Tribe after tribe is failing. What does it say? They did not drive the inhabitants out. They, they made them do forced labor. They took them in as slaves. So you need to notice the repetition. You may think, well, this gets really repetitive. What's the phrase repeated? They did not drive them out. It's repeated seven times. Now, this is not to bore us with redundancy, okay? It's to show a theological point. The other tribes did not fully obey God and drive out the pagan peoples the way Judah and Simeon did. And it's going to cause a problem. Exodus chapter 23, 29 through 33, gives us a precursor into what's going to happen if you don't drive the nations out. If you're not obedient to the Lord, if you don't do what God calls you to do. This is what Moses tells the people back in Exodus. Actually, the Lord through Moses. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. What's God saying to Israel? If you don't wipe out the pagans, you will be taken over by the pagans. Theologically, spiritually, you will begin to follow their pagan gods. Now, Israel, here in the second half of chapter 1, they were pragmatically successful in a sense, in that they almost conquered the pagan nations. They didn't totally drive them out. They did not drive them out. They they had forced labor. They kind of did it, but they were not totally obedient to God's command to drive them out of the land. And this is where it gets kind of touchy in the Christian life. Question, can we appear spiritually successful on the outside but in fact be spiritually disobedient? In other words, can we practice halfway obedience and be okay with it? I mean, we we do it all the time. Sometimes as Christians, we're content to, okay, I kind of dealt with it. I'm halfway obedient. I'm not going to fully repent. I'm going to just kind of pragmatically make it look like I'm following the Lord to an extent that I feel comfortable with. But it's not going to be total. What What did it say about Caleb? What it kept saying about Caleb? He Totally followed the Lord. What did Judah and Simeon do? They totally followed the Lord. <laughs> what did the other tribes do? They almost <laughs> followed the Lord. They sort of followed the Lord. Okay? The book of Revelation has something to say about this. Turn to the end of the Bible. Revelation. the seven, One of the seven churches is Sardis. And God has something to say to Sardis that I think is kind of pertinent to this whole idea of halfway obedience, um, not fully obeying the Lord, kind of trying but not getting that far. So Revelation 3, 1 through 6, to the church in Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. What's the issue with Sardis? Well, you got a great reputation. You, you're the happening church in the area. You've got this great look. Everybody looks to you as the spiritual powerhouse. But what does God say under the surface? You are, you're dead. You're incomplete. You appear to be like you're following me you're making people think you're following me you're making people think that you're obedient but underneath the surface when you scratch underneath that all the veneer of what you're making it look like you're actually dead and so i think in the book of judges as well as sardis and we as christians we can sometimes fall into the trap of pragmatism pragmatism now you may say what's pragmatism here's pragmatism pragmatism especially in the life of a church is the idea that as long as it works to bring in a crowd it must be okay there's not the question of does this glorify god but what overpowers it is the question will this work what's the nation of israel doing here are we being fully obedient to god Are we doing what's easy and comfortable and works? It's hard to drive the nations out, but we'll just take them as slaves because that's a little easier. We'll we'll go halfway, but not all the way. We'll have the reputation of looking like we're obedient, but we're really not. So let's ask a question. What exactly is an effective church? Church? We can look around at the American Christianity and become very confused. Is it having a big building? Is it having a huge budget? Is it slick marketing to the community? Is it the latest and greatest in media and technology? Is it well-oiled programs? Does it involve not stepping on toes? Does it mean that the church has political clout? Does it depend on size, whether you're a mega church or a small group? What makes a church effective? I asked an unfair question that's based more on modern pragmatism in the evangelical world. What did I ask? What makes an effective church? Now, I'm not against a church being effective. But what's the question that should come before that? The real question should be, what makes an obedient church? For I believe that when a church concerns itself with being obedient to Jesus then it will be by His power becoming effective. If we focus on effectiveness before obedience, we're getting the cart before the horse. If we're obedient, we will be effective in God's way. But if we're trying to be pragmatic and we're trying to be effective and we're trying to kind of halfway do things to, to try to appease God, we may, not, we may think we're powerful, we may think we're effective, but we may not be doing anything. We're doing everything on our own strength. Okay. I'll give you this quote from Leonard Ravenhill. I've given this before, I think on a sunny morning a couple years ago. I just like what he says. The New Testament church did not depend on a moral majority, but rather on a holy minority. The church right now has more fashion than passion, is more pathetic than prophetic, is more superficial than supernatural. The church that the apostles ministered in was a suffering church. Today we have a sufficient church. Events in the spirit-controlled church were amazing. In this day, the church is often just amusing. The New Testament church was identified with persecutions, prisons, and poverty. Today, many of us are identified with prosperity, popularity, and personalities. If you can't say ouch, you ought to say amen. That's what Votie says all the time. So, Benjamin could not drive out the Jebusites. The nations were not driven out. The tribes had halfway obedience. They were driven by what was easier. It started out so well. It's a good start. How does the chapter start? We're praying. We're seeking the face of the Lord. God's with us. We're doing His will. And in the end of the chapter is what? Couldn't drive them out. Couldn't drive them out. Couldn't drive them out. And in the end of the chapter is the Amorites. Okay, the Amorites are going to come back and haunt Israel in the book of Judges. The Amorites are an oppressive power. Daniel Block, who's written a, a, a commentary, has said this about this chapter. This chapter is pervaded by unfulfilled commitment, incomplete obedience, and compromising tolerance. Question, how can we experience the same? Unfulfilled commitments, incomplete obedience, and compromising tolerance. So That's how chapter 1 ends. Now, we're going to move into chapter 2. And chapter 2 is almost like a, you know like when you go to a movie theater and you watch preview of coming attractions? Chapter 2 is a preview of coming, chapter 2 is a preview of the rest of the book of Judges. It's just kind of a nutshell of what the rest of the book's about. So the author kind of throws his cards out there and says, okay, this is what the book's going to be about. It's just going to unfold with different Judges and different time periods. So let's go into chapter 2 and let's, Look at verses 1 through 5. I call weeping without repentance. Okay, so we're going into chapter 2. Chapter 1 did not end well. There's somewhat disunity. There's no complete obedience. They're not wholehearted. There's not a lot of Caleb's taking their mountain at age 85, wholly devoted to the Lord. It's more like they just kind of compromise their halfway. All right, let's go into chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you've done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept and they called the name of that place Bochim and they sacrificed there to the Lord. God had entered into a binding covenant with the nation of Israel, had He not? All the way back with Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. You go back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country to your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, the promised land, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The angel of the Lord comes to the nation of Israel and says, Listen. God has made a covenant with you that He swore to Abraham to give you a promised land. And then He kind of fast-forwards in time and says, Listen, even when you were in Egypt, 400 years later, when you were in slavery, God delivered you out of Egypt. Look at what He says there in verse... um, At the end of verse one, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. When I get you out of the, out of Egypt, when you go to the promised land, when you go in with Joshua, when you conquest the land, you, you're going to be having a land full of milk and honey, but you can't, you can't compromise. You've got to break down their altars. You've got to not become... I'm going to use a word up here. Israel, you can't become Canaanized. What do I mean by being Canaanized? Let me put it another way. Israel, you cannot be paganized. Paganized. When you go into the land, either you're going to be the leaders of the land following the Lord or the pagans in the land are going to be your leaders and you're going to be following them. You've got to make a choice, Israel. When you go into the land, either you will worship the Lord or you will become Canaanized. You will begin to worship the gods around you. And that's what Exodus 34:11 through 15 says. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice the gods, and you are invited, you eat of the sacrifice. Israel, when you go into the land, you tear down their altars, you do not be succumbed to their their pagan gods, you've got to stay faithful to worship me, the one true God, because I'm the covenant Lord. And what does the angel of the Lord say to them? Go back to Judges. At the end of verse 2, you have not obeyed my voice. Israel has not obeyed the voice. Now, it's interesting. Why does he say the voice? He could have just said, you did not obey me. You did not obey the Lord. What does he say? You did not obey my voice. This is how God stands above all the pagan gods in the Bible. The Lord God, Yahweh, stands above all other pagan deities because He alone is a speaking God who gave Israel explicit commandments so they would never have to guess what His revealed will was. No other God in the Bible, quote-unquote lowercase, God, spoke. How did God create? He spoke it into existence. How did God give the law? He spoke it. He had it written down. God has been very clear with Israel, so they're not confused. It wasn't like they could go to God and say, we had no idea what you expected, God. Uh, I wrote it down on two tablets in stone so you would remember. I've given you prophets. I've spoken it. Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 2. Oh, now, Israel, listen. Listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them. Why? That you may live. And go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. When you go into the land, it's very important that if you want to live successfully, if you want to live a blessed life in the promised land, listen to my voice, obey what I'm telling you. Tear down their altars. Do not become Canaanized. Do not get into the pagan idolatry. And so, what does God say in verse three? You know what? I'm not going to drive them out, and you're going to be Canaanized. <laughs> now, what do the people do? In verse four, Whee! they wept. Now, in verses four and five, we see what I like to call feigned repentance fake repentance they make a big deal out of it they weep they call the place Bokim, which means place of weeping we're going to weep and wail we can't believe you're going to do this god why would you do this weep wail cry god you can't do this here's the question you got to ask is this genuine repentance is this israel lamenting the fact that they got caught Do they truly desire to follow God and live for His glory? I'll answer the question for you, okay? Because you just have to read the rest of the book, okay? Sadly, the rest of the book shows how this was a false repentance and that Israel would rather be taken over by paganism instead of remaining true to the Lord. Is there such a thing as false repentance? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7:10 for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's godly grief and there's worldly grief. What's godly grief? Godly grief is a true sorrow for your sin, a, tr- a true contrition that you've sinned against God, a true desire to want to repent, a true heartbrokenness over your sin because you've offended God. Worldly grief is, man, I got caught and I don't like the consequences, so God, I'll kind of give up a few Hail Marys and I'll kind of you know, say I, you know, confess my sin and be real sorry, but I have no intention of ever changing. But I'll sure put on a show of weeping and wailing. Maybe that will give me brownie points with you if I get really, really sad for a season. So the question is, what is the difference between mourning over sin and true repentance? Well, the issue is, is their life change? Now, we're going to move into something that's very, very important for us as parents and grandparents. And this is part two the failure of the next generation. I want you to, let's read this carefully. Verses 6 through 13. It's kind of flashback into Joshua. And then the book started with Joshua dying, but there's a flashback. Okay. What happened after Joshua died? Remember I said there was no spiritual leadership. Moses set up Joshua. Joshua set up nobody. Here's, Here's what happens. Let's look at verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people... The people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Tennath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger, and they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Now, what's the issue? When Joshua was alive, the people did what? Served the Lord faithfully. After Joshua died, the elders who were still around, they as long as there were spiritual leadership, the people were doing fine, weren't they? When Joshua was alive, we're following the Lord. When the elders are alive, we're following the Lord. But look at what it says there in verse 10. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Now, think about that for a moment. They didn't know the Lord. Now, I don't think it meant that they, I don't know who God is. What were the mighty works that God had done for Israel? If you're growing up, what would your grandparents tell you? Well, we've got to tell you stories about the Red Sea. We've got to tell you stories about the crossing of the Jordan River. We've got to tell you about the walls of Jericho. We've got to tell you about these great stories, about the Lord and His faithfulness. They grew up hearing these things, so it wasn't like they somehow didn't know. I think it's purposely they chose this next generation not to follow the Lord. Now, (laughs) let's talk about responsibility here. After Joshua's death, that current generation failed in passing on the faith to the next generation. Now, I'm going to start meddling here. Whose primary responsibility was this in Israel? I think it's the same today, to pass the faith along to the next generation. There's two responsibilities. Let's look at the first. Parents. Who has the primary responsibility for passing the faith on to the next generation? Parents, you cannot abdicate that to anybody else. Parents, you hold the key responsibility into passing that faith along. That's why Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4-7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So this new generation that rose, somewhere there was a breakdown where the parents were not passing their faith along. Now, I'm not blaming it all on the parents, okay? because you can do the best job you can as a parent and your child's still going to do what they're going to do okay so i'm not here i'm not making a blanket statement saying if you raise your children in a godly home and you show them the way of the lord they're absolutely 100 percent always going to follow jesus experience tells us that's not true okay so it's not the response it's not because I'm not dumping it all on the parents' fault. When children get a certain age, they make their own choices, they do their own thing, they're responsible for that. But it still does not mean that as parents, we're not to do our best job we can to, to raise them. So number one, it's parents. But number two, in Israel, there was another group of people besides parents that were responsible for passing the faith along. This was the priests. In Leviticus 10, 11, Moses is talking to the priest. You are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So parents and priests in Israel. Today we'd say parents and pastors, I guess. Parents and spiritual leaders are to be passing the faith along to the next generation. Okay. What does verse 11 tell us they did? The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the, we call them Baals, but in Hebrew it's Baal, Baal or Baal. Now, who was Baal or Baal? The word means Lord or master or owner, which is kind of interesting. He was the Canaanite stormy weather fertility god, and his female counterpart was Ashtaroth, the goddess of love and war. So the Canaanite pagans hoped they would have good crops and livestock so they would go to temple prostitutes as an act of worship to appease Baal and Asherah. So think about if you're living in Israel, what are the nations doing around you? We got a god of crops, male. We got a female goddess of fertility. These gods are somewhat together. If we're going to have good crops and we're going to have good fertility, we need to go to the pagan temple and we need to hire out a prostitute, have sex with her to make sure we appease Baal and appease Asherah so we have good crops this year. Now, does that say anything about going against? I mean, that goes against all of the commandments of God. So the more sex you had with prostitutes, the more it would spur... Here's their thought process, okay? <laughs> okay? The more human sexual conduct that was going on, it would influence the gods to have more sexual conduct, which in turn would bring more rain. That was their thought process. So a lot of pagan prostitution going on so that they could have a better... If you're an agricultural society, everything depends upon... We're an agricultural society here. What does everything depend upon? Rain, Okay. He's the God of storms, of rain. She's the God of fertility. Okay. Psalm 106, 34 through 39. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people, and He abhorred His (coughs) heritage. Okay, so two major issues here with Israel. Number one, Israel failed to be distinct and separate from the pagan nations around them. They became canaanized, paganized. Paul tells us in the New Testament, in Romans 12, two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you that by testing you may discern what's the will of God, what is good, acceptable, acceptable, and perfect. Here's a question for us tonight. Maybe we can answer it. Why is it so important for us as Christians to be holy and distinct from the world? Why is it important? I'm saying it is important, but why is it important? Let that stand out there for a moment. Let me ask you another question. How do we remain unstained from the world while we have to live constantly in the world? That's a balance we have to face all the time. We're not gonna be monks where we're gonna go live outside, you know, in an enclave somewhere. Every day you face coworkers. Every day you face the world. Every day you're out there. You're among people of the world. You're among pagans. You're among the Canaanites, if you will. I'm not trying to be pejorative and say you're like your long friends are Canaanites. But you are in this world. How do you remain distinctly different? How are you, as Paul says, not conformed to the world? How are you transformed? I mean, you've got to make sure that your mind is filled with Scripture that your heart is filled with the things of the Lord, that you're constantly reminding yourself of who you are in Christ so that when you go out into the world, you don't look like the world. You don't become a product of the world. So the first thing Israel does is they, they were not distinct from the nations around them. They adopted their foreign gods. That's, to me, that's amazing. I mean, think about as an Israelite. If you were an eyewitness... Now, obviously, this is generations not an eyewitness of the crossing of the, Red, of the Red Sea, but let's say you crossed the Jordan River. You saw it. And you saw with your eyes like these miraculous things, like miraculous things. Like we don't see miraculous things today pretty much like they did back then. They saw with their eyes God in action how easily it was to say, yeah, let's throw that all away and I'll go to a temple prostitute and hang out with a God I can't see. But, hey, if, he, if I have sex, he'll have sex, we'll have crops. How easy was it for Israel just to throw away everything that they had seen? So that's the first thing they did. They they failed to be distinct from the pagan nations around them. And then number two, Israel failed to pass their faith along to the next generation. Let me give you another quote from Dale Ralph Davis. He says, The Bible is clear. Amnesia produces apostasy. That is why the Scripture is so frantic about the church not forgetting what the Lord has done for us. Amnesia produces apostasy. When you forget the working of the Lord, when you forget who you are, when you walk away from the Lord, it's very easy to drift into not following Him. Now, this is just another question I throw out there. We don't necessarily have to answer it. Just something to think about how do we model and train the next generation to follow Christ? Where is the potential breakdown? We could spend all night possibly talking about this, but I just throw that out there as a, as a talking point. All right, let's see if we can get done tonight. Hopefully we can. We've got 15 minutes. Let's go to part three, God's response. Well, obviously, we just read that God gets angry. Verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and so God gave them over to plunderers. God disciplined them. They were in terrible distress. They were invaded by surrounding armies. God is disciplining them. So the Lord responds with righteous anger. This is not God being capricious or petty, but holy in His response to Israel. His bride, they are committing spiritual adultery. That's why oftentimes it talks about prostituting or whoring themselves among the other gods of the nations. This is what they've done. It's Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13 Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's what's going on here. And God gets angry because His bride is going after other lovers. Exodus 34, 14, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. God oftentimes in the Old Testament gets angry at Israel. And it's an anger that comes because He loves them so much. Have you thought about that? Why is God angry when Israel's disobedient? Is it because He's angry? No, He's angry because He loves them. And as He loves them as a bride, He is angry that they have chosen other lovers and so it is absolutely loving for god to respond with jealous anger over the sin of his people you would i've given this illustration before many times about the jealousy of god let's just human human analogy okay so i take my wife out We're, we go to a fancy restaurant where it's our anniversary um it's a beautiful candlelit meal Um, I'm looking in her eyes, she's looking at my eyes, and we're just enjoying the moment, and we're having a wonderful meal. And the waiter comes up, and he says, Excuse me, um, would you mind if I take your wife upstairs to a hotel room and um, spend some time with her? And I say, Sure, dude, go for it. She's just my wife. I mean, okay, at that moment, what would a normal husband do? (laughs) We're going to have to have some words here. Absolutely not. If you get any closer, I'm going to punch her in the nose. This, this is totally out of line. She's my covenant wife. I'm going to protect her. No way, Jose. Okay, I would do that as a husband. Okay. Think about God who's perfect, the perfect, holy husband of his people Israel. When other gods and other lovers come to vie for their attention, what's God going to do? God's going to step in as an angry husband and say, over my dead body i love my bride so much that my anger kindles against them so god is a jealous god because he loves his people now they're in distress and let's look at verses um, 16 through 18 this is how the lord responds after his anger the people are in terrible distress then the lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Okay, they're groaning. Reminds us of the Israelites groaning in the time of Exodus. We can go back and look at those for a moment. Here's the cycle here. Okay, I'm going to draw this on the board. Maybe you, the listening on podcast, can't see this, and maybe you on Facebook Live can't see this. But, okay, so Israel, they're oppressed. They groan, they cry out, the Lord's moved to mercy, he raises up a judge, the judge delivers the people, and then they go back into idolatry, and then they get oppressed again. This is the continuing cycle of the book of Judges right there. Israel is engaged in idolatry, their idolatry causes them to be oppressed, they cry out, we don't like to be oppressed, we're being taken over, God says, okay, I'm going to raise up a judge, a military deliverer, God delivers them, and then after a while, they go back into idolatry, and the cycle starts over and over again. Now, as we go through the book of Judges, this is not just a repeating cycle, it's a downward spiral, because after each successive judge, it gets worse and worse. And so that's what happens here in this preview of coming attraction. So let's just look at verses 19 through 23, because the end of the chapter tells us this downward spiral. Verse 19. When the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because his people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua." What happens in verse 19? Whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. Interesting word, turn back. It's the Hebrew word shuv, which normally means to repent in a positive way. When you shuv in the Old Testament, it means you repent and you turn back to God they're shoving they're repenting in the opposite way what are they are they turning back to god no they're turning back to more corrupt ways they're going back to pagan idolatry so verse 19 is crucial to understanding the entire book of judges let's read it again but whenever the judge died they turned back. They repented in the wrong direction and were more corrupt than their fathers going after God, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not draft any of their practices or stubborn ways. So here's, here's the cycle, okay? We're oppressed. We're crying out. We need help. God says, okay, I'm going to send a judge. The judge delivers them. What happens when the judge dies? Verse 19, they go back to their pagan idolatry in in an even worse way. And the cycle starts all over again. So you've got this endless cycle of, and I'm going to use the word slavery to sin. It's a cycle. So the book of Judges is about a downward cycle into the slavery of sin sin in other words when there's a spiritual leader when the judge is around the people do well anytime a spiritual leader is dead they go right back into their slavery to idolatry so you could say that the entire book of judges deals with slavery to sin and a lack of repentance And chapter 2, verse 19 is a key verse in understanding that. Now, what does the Bible say about slavery to sin? Let's go to Romans chapter 6. And in just a few moments that we have left, what does Paul say about slavery to sin? Romans 6. With a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Now, I've got a lot of um, things to say about this passage of Scripture that are on your sheet that I'm going to summarize in just a few statements. Okay, so you can go back and read that. Paul's main point is this. When you somehow spiritually, mystically, supernaturally, when Jesus died on the cross, your sins died with him. When he was buried, your old self was buried with him. When he rose again, your new self has been risen again. So if you are united to Christ by faith, Paul says it's a reality that your old life has died and you now have a new life. And this new life is one of freedom, which means you're no longer enslaved to sin. You're no longer in bondage to sin. It's true for every person who's in Christ that you are no longer a slave to sin. You've been set free. Now, question. Go down. I don't know what page this is on, but um, it's the, right before the Galatians passage. Question. I know I'm skipping a lot of material here. Page 23. If we are no longer slaves to sin, then why do we find it so hard to fight against it? That's the entire book of Judges. The Israelites fighting against the slavery to sin over and over again. And God being merciful and bailing them out over and over again. Well, Galatians tells us why. Galatians five sixteen and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh... For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's a battle raging. Here's bottom line, guys, as we start Judges. We'll get this down to the bottom line. Israel preferred their slavery to pagan idolatry instead of trusting in the Lord. Instead of truly repenting, they continued in this downward spiral of sin and rebellion. Yet, in God's grace, He provides judges or military leaders to deliver His people. Even in the midst of gross idolatry, God still remains steadfast to His covenant people and will never leave them or forsake them. He will Discipline them as a jealous husband who has every right to passionately protect his bride from being defiled by the nations around Israel. Here's the good news for us. As believers in Jesus, we've been saved by grace alone and delivered from bondage to sin. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can experience a lifestyle of repentance When we do fall back into rebellion and sin patterns, we must remember that Jesus is our Savior and we find assurance by faith in Him and the gospel. The grace of God in Christ is never an excuse to continue to live a life of rebellion and sin, but should move us to repentance and find assurance in His steadfast love for us in His covenant faithfulness. So Judges is going to teach us about slavery to sin, and God's grace, repentance, all these issues, and it's going, to get, it's going to go from bad to worse, okay? But in the midst of that, you're still going to see God showing love to His people.